0: Welcome to the Shear Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Shear Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss. And the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear.
1: Stay tuned as we discuss the impact of the pandemic on credit union lending and servicing with Joel Bowen, current president of the California Credit Union Collectors Council. And stay tuned for our Where is the Love segment, where Northern California residents such as Gary of Novato have the following to say about keeping current eviction and foreclosure moratoriums in place.
2: They should stop. It's not the government's place to tell, to force landlords to lose money because they provided property for people. There's got to be another solution, but it's not the government's business to make the decision.
1: Where is the love, where is the love, where is the love, where is the love, love, the The onset of the COVID-19 pandemic was a unique event for this generation. No one asked for the pandemic, and it could be argued that the U.S. government had to act promptly in order to keep order and limit pain and suffering, while everyone figured out the danger and the solutions to the problems. However, it's now abundantly clear that what started out as emergency government help to affected businesses and individuals has now morphed into extended social engineering in virtually all areas of life, well beyond that needed to combat the pandemic. From check after stimulus check to extended unemployment benefits, to rent and mortgage payment forbearance and subsidies, there's billions and billions of dollars of hidden stimulus that's been given out or will be given out. But mark my words, nothing's for free. Someone's going to have to pay, and that someone is likely you and me, in the form of higher taxes and higher prices. In our Where is the Love segment, I focus on one aspect of hidden stimulus, eviction and mortgage moratoriums. I ask people in Northern California, should the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums that have been in place for as long as 18 months be allowed to continue, or should they end? And you'll be surprised at some of the responses. Some, including a former federal bankruptcy judge, clearly thought that continued eviction moratoriums are unfair to landlords, that there's plenty of work available, and that people should pay rent. Steve Smith, San Rafael, they should stop. Why? Well, because it's not fair to the landlords, uh, it's like taking their property from them. I think it's unconstitutional. It's gone on for so long and they have bills to pay and lots of expenses and obligations. And uh, what are they going to do? It's, it's just not fair. It's time to even it out.
0: Pablo. And Pablo, where are you from? Uh, original from Guatemala.
1: And where are you from now?
0: I'm living here in Green California. Probably stuff. Why? Because we have plenty of work, so I think there's
2: no reason for people not paying their rents.
0: Alright, what's your name? Rick Lopez. And where are you from, Rick? Uh, San Rafael, California. I don't believe they should continue. Why not? I believe that ultimately somebody has to pay the price. So whether, whether it's a landlord or the owner of the, the land or the bank. All we're doing is pushing away the debt from the very top and moving it downward, and somebody ends up hurting from it. I I think for a a period of time while we went through some turmoil, uh, it was not a terrible thing, but it has to end at some juncture, and eventually somebody's going to have to end up paying the full price for the whole thing.
1: Thank you. Can you tell me your name? Alan Jaroslawski. And Alan, where are you from? Santa Rosa, California. If the Supreme Court didn't rule and it was just up to you, which formerly were Judge Jaroslawski, would they continue or not?
2: I'd say it's gone on long enough
1: because there are lots and lots of landlords who are suffering as much as tenants, if not more. Thank you. But surprisingly, one landlord wanted to see the moratoriums continue. While his tenant was paying, he didn't want to see others go homeless. In my, I'm Tim. And Tim, where are you from? Novaro. For the time being, I, I recommend or I support that it should continue. How long do you think they should continue for? Well, that's a tough question. It cannot go in indefinitely. I know I'm a landlord myself. That's good. So you're a landlord and you still support the continuation. I appreciate that. Why? Fortunately, my tenant was able to, but I do see a lot of people homeless being put on the sidewalks and live on their freeways.
2: That's not fair in the United States of America.
1: Many want to see the moratoriums continue because they believe it's the price we pay to keep a safe society. And that it's a good use of the money. What's your name? Laney. Laney, where are you from? Santa Rafael. Okay, and Lanny, the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums that have been put into place for as long as 18 months due to the pandemic, should they stop or should they continue? They should not continue indefinitely as is, but I can see some sort of... Uh, modified assistance going forward, meaning that uh, these foreclosure and eviction moratoriums, someone's got to pay for them eventually, whether through government bonds or through higher prices or or local and state taxes. If you knew that you had to pay those indirectly, would it affect your decision on whether to keep the moratoriums in effect? That is the cost of a safe and supportive society great? What's your name, Rudy Keller? Rudy, where are you from? Santa Fe, California. I believe they should continue. Everybody deserves a place to live. That's good. And if, if you knew that either your paycheck or the price of the food that you were buying was being increased to pay for that, would that bother you at all? No, sir. They're raising prices everywhere. At least I know that the money is going somewhere helpful. Great. Thank you. Others support the continued moratoriums, but they think twice about it when asked if they'd continue to support them if they had to pay higher taxes or higher costs for goods to keep them in place. Okay, what's your name? Juan Carlos. Okay, where do you live, Juan Carlos?
3: I live in San Rafael. I think they should go on. Why? For at least a little bit. There's still a lot of needs in there, though. I mean, it's a lot of people in needs, and they they really need this, that support. I I, I believe this it's been helping a lot of families right now, and so why not keep doing that for a little a bit more?
1: Okay, if you knew that it would result in more taxes coming out of your paycheck, would that change your mind?
3: Ouch, that's like... Yeah, that's a good question. I'm um, still say Chugong. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. My name's Ron Corral. And where are you from? I am
2: from Nevada, California. Well, I don't know where I quite stand on this issue. I just seen it come up in the newspapers. On one hand, I can see uh, you know for the for the tenants who, you know, beyond their control and circumstances, you know, had jobs that they might have lost. Then on the other hand, I could see people that might take advantage of that, who would take advantage of their landlords
1: and just stop paying them, even though they might have the means to pay them. One more question. If you knew that continuing these eviction and foreclosure moratoriums would result in higher taxes for you, Ron Corral, in the future, would that change anything? I don't know. I guess it would depend on how much they, they raise the taxes. You know, it's a tough issue. Some believe in individual self-reliance. And it's just not the government's business to keep getting involved. Okay, what's
0: your name? My name is Gary. And Gary, where are you from? I'm from Novato. Okay. They should stop. It's not the government's place to tell, to
2: force landlords to lose money because they've provided property for people. There's got to be another solution, but it's not the government's business to make the
1: decision. Okay, and if, if the uh if the government has money to be able to pay some of these landlords, will that change your mind? Um, yes, because that's
2: that's tax money. I don't know that. I'm not a hundred percent certain about that.
1: Thank you. Okay. What's your name? My name is David. And where are you from? I am from Novato. I feel bad for anybody if they've lost their job or or what have you. But but again, we're all in the same boat as far as. If I lose my job, I need to find a job. If, if I'm underemployed, I need to get another job. And that's what I've always had to do. A lot of people have had to do that. Uh, but I'm not, I don't, for me, the government isn't my ticket to financial help. I've never f- looked at them that way. I, I think the more they stay out of the better. And I just think that the problem's gotten bigger because, they're, because they are bailing people out. It, it creates a larger problem rather than a better solution. The effect of the COVID-19 pandemic has gone well beyond the immediate impact of the virus. The America of bygone days were self-reliance, individualism and help from family, neighbors and charities. When that was the answer to disaster, that appears to be giving way to cries that the government must save us all at any price. I think clearly most Americans want to help those in need, whether it's either out of heart- heartfelt compassion or because they want a safer society. The question of whether leaving this task to the government is either wise or efficient, and whether the government's overstepped its bounds to pursue social agendas, is a question in the making. This will likely be answered over the next few years when the bills become due. Not just the financial and economic bills, but likely the sacrifice of some of our individual liberties. And it's clear. And one way or another, we're all going to have to pay the price. The last 18 months have been a rough one for planet Earth. Take one part pandemic, add in a little earthquake and season with drought, hurricanes and typhoon. You've got a recipe for lots of disaster. So I want to introduce Mark Corey. the executive vice president of Food for the Poor. It's an organization helping those most impacted by disaster. So you can see if you want to help those who've been devastated by recent earthquakes, a typhoon in Haiti. So Mark, welcome to Truth Serum. Thank you.
3: Happy to be here. Thank you. Tell our listeners a little bit about Food for the Poor. Okay. um, Food for the Poor is an interdenominational Christian ministry that's about 40 years old. We serve 17 countries throughout the Caribbean and Latin America. We work in the spectrum from relief through, de- through development. So we do things such as deliver food in, in aid. We build homes. We do education. We do uh, health care. Um, we do water and microenterprise projects, to name a few. Good. So I'd say
1: most of us in the U.S., we've got first world problems. A car breaks down. Maybe you lose your job. Uh, Tell people about what happens and impacts uh, the people of Haiti from the recent
3: disasters. Wow. Well, the people in Haiti are are really suffering. And to be honest with you, they were suffering before this earthquake and this tropical storm grace that came through. Uh, There were studies saying that 4.2 out of the 11 million people who live in Haiti were severely food insecure. So now this earthquake and, and, and this tropical storm that's come through in the Southern Peninsula has made things so much worse. Right now, people don't have shelter. Uh, I think I heard reports of somewhere about 750,000 homes have crumbled. So that's, 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 such, that's, that's such a large amount of people who no longer have shelter. And then, then came Tropical Storm Grace and dumped a whole bunch of water, lots of mudslides. So it's, it's just a recipe for disaster, and the people are really suffering. My, my heart really goes out to them. So what can people do to help? People can help in, um, in many ways. So, you know, to, to, to do work in Haiti takes money. So first and foremost, I'd ask your listeners to go to our website, uh, foodforthepoor.org, and donate there. We're also doing a collection drive for food because food is, as I said, one of the greatest needs. So if you go to our website, uh, you can go, You can see, go to foodfortheport.org f- forward slash Haiti aid. And those are the canned goods that we're delivering for people who live here in South Florida. If you're living somewhere in the rest of the States, then we have an Amazon smile page, which is same wwwfoodforthepoororg forward slash emergency supplies. And you can buy the things that are needed and Amazon will deliver it to our warehouse. Right now, we buy with our purchasing power. 10 cents purchases a meal of food. So a, a, a rice, a rice and beans, we can do it at 10 cents per meal. So $50 can do, do a lot.
1: We support a fair amount of organizations. I'm impressed with the fact that that Food for the Poor goes out uh, in any situation, delivers aid, and I think you effectively get the job done. So uh, again, listeners, there'll be a quiz. So take down this information, Mark, one more time. Tell people how they can get down... To uh, contribute uh, whatever they can to help food for the poor.
3: Well, if you go to foodforthepoor.org, you can write on that on the landing page. You'll see to donate towards uh, the Haiti earthquake. Also, uh, you can go to foodforthepoor.org/emergency-supplies, and that goes to our Amazon page with a list of items that we specifically need, and that will be delivered to our warehouse. And we have con- we have goods going out to Haiti every week. Great. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the
1: time. I hope our listeners will respond. Thank
3: you very much. Greatly appreciate it. You're welcome.
0: Laws and real estate.
1: All right, Joel, I'm going to tell uh, our listeners a little bit of background about you and then uh, we can get down to the interview. Okay. You're the current president of California Credit Union Collectors Council. It's an organization that provides education and support services to credit unions throughout the state of California, and you're the Loan Resolution Manager for Caltech Employees Federal Credit Union. I want to welcome you, Joel Bowen. Thanks for having me. Great. I'm going to ask you some questions, especially related to the pandemic. Federal state eviction and foreclosure moratoriums have been in place for as long as 18 months since the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020. And as part of its commentary on the new mortgage servicing rules that are effective, on August 31, the CFPB noted that as many as 7 million borrowers have been placed in the forbearance programs that are going to phase out over the summer. And and the moratorium on evictions is set to expire October 3rd if it's not overturned sooner than that. So my question to you is, do you think the eviction and the foreclosure moratoriums were kept in place for too long? And did they allow people to gain the system or do you think they were appropriate because of the pandemic? From my point of view, I think it was too long. For
2: some members, it was desperately needed, but I I think I would say a good percentage of members or borrowers actually took advantage of the program um, to be able to not make payments and actually save that money. Um, Here at my credit union, we did quite a bit in forbearance Modification for members, a little more than $36.5 million in forbearance, a little more than 300 loans starting in the spring of last year. We currently have less than 10 loans that are still in the program for about a million dollars. So that tells me that the majority of debtors really didn't need it. So I think realistically, I think the program was extended too long. There were some that desperately needed it. We saw that. Um, people that worked in the hospitality field, let's say spouse or the the supporting partner in the house, uh, in the restaurant, and let's say hospitality business, those companies really um, were affected tremendously and those debtors really needed it. But I would say there was a good percentage of members that really didn't need it and actually, like you said, actually gained the system by not making the mortgage payments and actually saving you know, those six months or eight months worth of payments.
1: Most of the ones that your credit union did, were they uh, just temporary payment deferrals or were they forbearance or modification agreements that stuck the uh, deferred payments at the end of the loan?
2: Yeah, so basically they were forbearance. We basically extended the term of the loan by the number of months the member was granted. So under the COVID uh, mandate, we basically allowed those members, depending on how much they were asking for, we went as far as nine months. Of course, the regulators were suggesting a year or more. Um, We went as far as nine months, and we had only two members that asked for more than that. So that,
1: again, tells me that, obviously, it was
2: not necessary. It was too long.
1: You know, under the new uh, mortgage servicing rules uh, that are effective at the end of this month, uh, they're allowing, under certain circumstances, people to extend and enter into loan modifications for as long as 40 years. Oh, exactly. And and I think that is... (laughs) That is ludicrous. For example,
2: of course, as the lender, you're basically foregoing interest. Uh, of course, the, the debtor is not repaying that. Obviously, you're basically writing that off. So I, I think in hindsight, I would say probably a good percentage of those who took advantage of it, for example, those lenders that ask for little or no, supporting documentation you just call and say i was been affected okay we'll give you six months without making any payments we took a different approach we basically asked the member for supporting documents um you know send me a letter explaining your hardship um, or we actually gave them the basic fanny Freddie disclosure uh mortgage application uh hardship to complete based on that we made our decision as to how we were going to approach the member
1: What what do you think? You think that there'll be a resumption of normal collection efforts in the fall and the winter, and you think there's going to be a torrent of litigation or just a measured response?
2: I think right now, I don't see collection efforts actually starting in the fall, maybe um, early to late spring. The reason why I'm saying that is delinquency across the board for just about all lenders, extremely low. Um, I actually polled a number of my folks in my organization and everyone basically are saying that they're at record low delinquency right now. So I don't see normal collection efforts actually starting until I would say maybe second quarter of next year. And here's my reasoning. Obviously, delinquencies are low right now. Uh, but people every year go through that holiday spending spree. And then when the bail comes due in February or January or February and then obviously, you know, folks realize that, well, I didn't budget for it. So I think for now, you're not going to see that until probably the second quarter of next year.
1: Let's switch over. On August 10th, the CFPB issued what they referred to as the COVID-19 Mortgage Servicing Response Metrics Report. That's a mouthful there, but in essence, they gathered data from 16 larger servicers during the pandemic to see how they responded to hardship and forbearance requests. So they they monitored factors like how long it took to respond to phone calls from borrowers seeking foreclosure avoidance options, who was approved, who was denied the racial demographics and English proficiency of those who applied for foreclosure alternatives and who got relief and who didn't. So it's clear to me, at least that the CFPB is going to be monitoring and I, they're going to see if they will be rating servicers to see if they are complying and really affecting their policy of trying to keep as many people out of foreclosure. So you think credit unions and their services are prepared to comply with uh, CFPB mandates or state court regulators or or state regulators?
2: I think for the most part, we are prepared. And, uh, you know, credit unions actually, I think we operate differently. I can say, I know we operate differently. We are, we are, prepared, uh, and obviously on our side, we would prefer to keep the member in the property. So, you know, the mandate, uh, I think for us and for people in the credit world, uh, we want to do the right thing for the member. For those servicers who have larger balances and larger volumes of accounts, it may be a little challenge because obviously, depending on the volume that you have, as far as response, but I think for the most part, credit unions want to do the right thing. So I think uh, most credit unions,
1: if not all, will
2: actually comply with this mandate.
1: Let's switch over to new FDCPA rules they are effective at the end of November of this year. Uh, there's new licensing requirements for attorneys, but a lot of the rules are, are directed to collection efforts on social media uh, by text. And for example the amended uh, FDCPA rules allow debt collectors to use email and text messages to communicate with consumers regarding their debts subject to certain limitations. For example, if a debt collector sends you a private message via social media, like through Facebook or on LinkedIn, asking to be added as one of your contacts, they're supposed to disclose their identity as a debt collector. Now, the rules really designed to govern more modern communication. Do you think collectors, at least in the credit union context, are going to be able to faithfully comply with these types of new regulations, do you think the temptation to find where the borrower went and that collect on is going to be too great? I like that word faithfully comply because you
2: are going to have some that are going to be tempted not to disclose, right? However, I think no one wants to be the credit union that's going to be out there, that's going to be singled out for violation. Um, I think you're, you're probably going to have a few that probably will Go ahead and actually try to contact the member via social media or LinkedIn or whatever, and actually follow guidelines. Because, you know, what's in the back of the collector's mind, depending on how, you know, what format they are? Am I on a commission base? Am I making money if I don't, you know, make contact? But I think for the most part, I think those credit unions who do decide to actually use this medium to actually collect are going to be a little reserve and make sure that they're following the regulations so that they're not, you know, chided by you know the regulators or, um, you know, find themselves in, in the limelight, you know, actually on in front of the
1: New York times, no one wants to be there. Right. That's right. No one wants to be there. Right. Yeah. If you look back, I remember, you know, again, the most infamous example of I think a credit union that got dinged for lack of a better word was when they had the, uh the whole cfpb report on navy fed remember that was a couple
2: of years ago yes yes i think i think that in itself will actually be a deterrent to a lot of credit unions who saw the negative publicity that navy fed received from that just to make sure that they remind their collectors to stay within the limits what's the craziest foreclosure or repossession story you've ever heard oh it's a you know, I was involved in a few over the years and it's it's always something that is difficult to do when you're taking someone's property away. It's not really their property and obviously, you know, the lender owns it until you pay it off. But I, I had one where we uh, foreclosed on the property. Uh, the member was told he had to vacate and was given advance notice. When we got to the property, there's probably about five truckloads of stuff we had to pull out the house. Hmm. Five truckloads of stuff we had to pull. And he was actually still laying in the couch
1: <laughs> in the living
2: room. Wow. So the sheriff deputy came to me and said, I mean, Mr. Bone, what do you want me to do? You know, I can just haul him out. Obviously, the sign says he shouldn't be occupying the property. So I you know, politely said to the sheriff, you know, let's give him 20 minutes to get what he wants. So the member came on and said to me, can you give me a couple of weeks? Well, the notice was posted on the door, right? You know, the time that you need to, to vacate. But, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of odd that he did not take one thing out the property. I mean, we had a number of truckloads of stuff we had to pull out in order to actually clean out the property. What a mess. Yes, yes. Here, you know, we have one foreclosure every
1: Five or six years. So it's very few in between here. Good. Knock on wood. I'm not going to <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Uh, reaffirmation agreements and bankruptcy. Let's talk about that for a second. I, would, I, re- I alluded to that earlier. They're a valuable tool to keep a borrower's obligation alive even after bankruptcy, meaning that uh, normally in a bankruptcy, you can discharge or wipe out personal obligations on loans, automobile loans, personal loans. But in some instances, they will allow a borrower to reaffirm or keep that personal obligation alive. Primarily, uh, they've made an exception for credit unions, believing that the relationship between a credit union and a borrower is oftentimes better. And the borrower wants to keep that relationship alive after bankruptcy and maybe keep the relationship in where they could never get credit otherwise. Uh, You think reaffirmation agreements benefit credit union members or, or just the credit union? Well, I think on both
2: sides. It benefits uh, both the member and the credit union. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Here on our bankruptcy, we see a very high rate of reformations. Uh, our members tend to be very loyal to the credit union, and I'm assuming not just here, but other lenders as well. Um, so for me, from my perspective, it, it benefits the credit union if, if the member actually decides I'm going to enter into that agreement because obviously they're repaying the debt. For the member, the benefit is I go through this reaffirmation agreement, uh, you know, my 20, you know, 2009, you know, Chevy Buick that I've been driving for 15 years is actually falling apart. I'm going to need another car loan, you know, a year from now. That member goes to the reaffirmation agreement You know, goes back to the credit union and say, we've actually made exception where the loan was not completely paid off, but the car died. So what, what do you do? So we basically uh, would say that a member, you know, we'll actually do as long as it's discharged and you're paying, we'll actually make you another loan. So I think there is a there's a balance there. It benefits the credit union in a sense, yes, that debt is actually going to be repaid, but it benefits the member because the member can come back, you know, three, four years down the road and say, you know, can you give me another loan? And those are things that we look at um, very, very carefully here to decide whether or not we'll actually,
1: you know, uh, lend to the member again in the future. Very good. You know, I'll say, I, I usually tell my clients, well, well there's a, an old maxim: give a little get a lot. And that is... You'll find, at least I find, that uh, if somebody reaffirms a debt, they're probably three, four times more likely to continue to pay on it after a bankruptcy than if they haven't. And oftentimes, whether it's a bank or credit union, whatever, if they'll forgive some of the urges or knock down the rate a little bit uh, to give the borrower some incentive to reaffirm, it's a win-win for both sides. And that is true. I think members
2: are more than willing to pay you as a lender if they see that you're willing to make some compromise right so for us we we are always looking for ways in which we can actually make the member feel at ease especially going through bankruptcy we know that's a you know traumatic situation as it is. but if the member say you know i want to make things good with you what can we as a lender do to make the member feel more at ease so, you know we're willing to actually do things outside the box Actually, to make the member feel more at ease, and actually continue to pay on that debt, you know, provided obviously it's it's reaffirmed and actually
1: uh, approved by the court. That's true. That, that's something you got. To, what you said is uh, very wise. It's got to be reviewed and approved by the court. Absolutely right, correct. So even even if you even if you prepare it, then the judge doesn't sign off on it. It's not valid. Yeah, they got unsolicited advice. I remember years and years ago. I've been practicing uh way back. But uh there was, I think, American General or Sears and Robuk, one of the two. Uh they were getting reaffirmation agreements, but they weren't filing with the bankruptcy court because they wouldn't have been approved. Uh and they got the borrowers to continue to pay and that eventually came home to roost in, in the uh in the way of a uh, you know class action suit for less. millions
2: and millions of dollars. Right. right. It, it, it's 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 so funny you say that because you know for a lot of lender, another lender who actually did the same thing. And obviously, you know, sadly to say, um, you know, they were caught down the road. I always believe in doing things the right way. If it means that my reaffirmation gets denied by the court, then I'm going to do that. But I am not going to file that reaffirmation just because the member signed it, took it away in the file and let the member continue to pay that's not a completed reaffirmation. It has to be approved. And like you said, you know, some judges or some attorneys may say to the debtor, why sign this? But you know, as, as the debtor, the debtor sees like, the question you asked previously, I want to maintain a relationship with my credit union because I have no other place to go. And I think that is the theme that
1: you'll probably hear just about any credit union. Good advice. All right, let's switch over to crypto, everybody's favorite uh, topic nowadays. This summer, the NCUA board requested comments and information from credit unions on the current and potential impact of activities related to digital assets like crypto and decentralized finance. They want to examine both the potential uses in the credit union system and the risks. I saw an article by CUI Insight that once said that Bitcoin and other digital assets will be the death of credit unions. They said if credit unions don't see the use and and the uh value to their members than other financial institutions who just pass them by. So what are you, what are your thoughts on whether credit unions will begin to accept crypto in the current coming years? No, it's it's that's something I think for right
2: now it may take a while for credit unions to warm up to that. And I think for two reasons, obviously in the credit union world, members actually own their organization. It's 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 different from the banking world. And I think we are more um, reserve and conservative on the conservative side as to how as to how we manage and invest our members money so of course right now bitcoin seem to be the thing that's actually taking off right now the larger corporations you now I, I just heard recently that walmart actually have decided that they're going to actually get into the bitcoin side of things so i don't see in the near future credit unions accepting bitcoins it may take some years for that to happen and for it to become more widely accepted before credit unions may, let's say, eventually say, you know, let's take a look at this. But I, I don't see that having a, an effect where it may actually cause credit unions to become absolute. If that's the case and Bitcoin actually gets, you know, for let me say five years from now and it seems that, you know, all the bigger, bigger players are involved in it, then I think the
1: Approach that credit union have currently will probably change. That's a good point. And I always bring this up because you know I'm interested in this personally because I think that it is the next financial revolution, meaning that I think I, I suspect that fiat currency uh, will be replaced eventually by digital currency. But there's a the difference, much, the big difference between uh, blockchain technology and you know ledger distributive technology upon which Bitcoin and Ethereum is based. I think that's here to stay. And I think the battle will be who ends up regulating it. Uh, Bitcoin's hard to manage and it's, it's uncertain. And I think the, the risk for institutions to accept that is great. You saw Elon Musk, right? He went yes, out and yes, you know, yes. even he couldn't handle it for more than a week. Right, right. But I, I I see also, whether it's credit unions or anybody else, you see a lot of younger people, they're sold on the idea they want digital currency. It's it's, it's funny you say that because one of our vice
2: presidents here, uh, who works with me her kids are actually in, into it so you know they don't want tennis shoe you know they don't want clothes you know you know they want bitcoin so basically that's that's the in thing for the younger generation but i think you said it right you know credit unions are a little bit more conservative and want to be sure um uh, let's say what happens you know five years from now uh, let's say you know bitcoin actually do a reversal and actually is on a downward trend Uh, What happens then to all that money that you've invested that you you then have to go back to your membership and explain, you know, why you took that risk? So I I think for now, credit unions are probably going to take a wait and see approach before they think about actually jumping into the current stream. Very good.
1: All right. I want to give you a minute or so, if you would. I tell our listeners about the upcoming uh, convention that you're having and uh, where it's going to be and some of the highlights.
2: Um, Actually, yeah, we have a conference coming up in October at Santa Clara Hyatt, and actually this year we have probably by far the best lineup of presenters we've had in all the years that I've been going to the conference. Um, It's going to be in October, and there is information on our website at www.ccucc.com. We basically, five years ago, interjected lending into our program it used to be just a collection side of things but we believe that lending and collection goes hand in hand so we basically have uh two keynote speakers that's going to be talking on the lending side uh specifically talking about current trends in lending um and then obviously we have um a Troy Stang from uh, Northwest Credit Union League who's actually going to be our key speaker and we have a a great speaker for a Saturday session, the uh, person that heads up eOscar, and we're all bombarded with disputes, so we're doing a mini um, eOscar training session for all of Saturday morning. So we're seeing some credit unions registering just for the Saturday session alone. So this year, we have a um, a tight schedule. We have so much on the agenda. I think you cannot afford to miss this uh, this conference out so, Check, check us out on uh, ccucc.com, annual conference link, and you'll get a list of you know all the speakers that, that we have scheduled for this year. Great. And is it going to be uh, virtual and live or just live? We're not going to do it in virtual this year. It's all going to be in person. However, some of the sessions that we are having, we are going to be recording some of those sessions and uh, make it available to some of those crediting into. You know, we're hearing may not get permission to travel. My goal is to provide the education to credit unions no matter what. So, if you can't make it, we'll do whatever we can to actually get you some of the information that's going to be presented at the conference this year.
1: Very good. Looking forward to it. I know one of my favorite people is coming up. He's going to be attending, speaking. That's the, uh, uh, the one Josh sure Josh here. Josh has been a staple for
2: us. And obviously, you know, you as well over the years, you've been some, you've actually done some presenting for us over the years. Um, You know, Josh is on my local schedule here, maybe two or three times a year. But in addition to Josh, we have some really great panels this year. And I'm I'm really excited about what we have as far as the uh, educational side of it for the conference this year.
1: That's great. So I want to thank you for your time. It's always good to talk to you. I, uh, I think it's going to be a great conference. I urge people to attend. I've always had a good time when I've gone. it. It was good actually uh, talking to you. Enjoyed it, sir. Thank you.
2: Take care. You too.
0: The Law.
1: Just in case you thought there'd be no consequences to rent-free living under the eviction moratorium,
3: buying a home may now be harder.
1: On August 11th, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which oversees Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the largest mortgage providers in this country, announced that it will now consider rental payment history in its risk assessment process when they're underwriting loans. This will make buying a home harder for those who could have paid but did not during the pandemic, and easier for those that did.
3: Is it really finally
1: over? And in breaking news, issued just after we previously recorded this episode, the Supreme Court on August 26th and a divided opinion struck down the national eviction moratorium that was imposed by the CDC and supported by the Biden administration. And just what has been the cost of the continued eviction moratoriums? AP reported on August 20th, that there are now more than fifteen million people living in households that owe as much as twenty billion and that's with a B in back rent. This according to the Aspen Institute. Many believe that some tenants could have paid rent if, if not for the moratoriums, and the forty seven billion in federal rental assistance that was supposed to make landlords whole has been really slow to materialize, and by July only three billion of the first tranche of twenty five billion had been distributed. Many landlords are saddled with tens of thousands of dollars in lost rent, money that was supposed to be spent for retirement or a college fund or for their investors, who themselves had sought a safe investment. They're maxing out credit cards or dipping into savings to pay property taxes, staff salaries, insurance, and other rental repairs. Stay tuned. Can't go on forever. Road rage, road rage, landlord rage. I recently reviewed a request for legal assistance submitted to a legal clearinghouse from a tenant in Northern California. Uh, I think it sums up some of the simmering rage that's heating up between angry landlords and tenants in California. The following is the tenant's request for representation. On August 1st, my live-in partner and I were evicted by force from our residence in blank California. We were told we had one day to get our belongings and we couldn't stay there. The police would be called. We're still locked out, and I refused entry to get our things, and have been told that my boyfriend's belongings are no longer there, and they're throwing away his stuff. We were accused of killing and skinning the landlady's lamb and throwing it over the fence to intimidate her. She sent me a video of the hide. She's gone through all my things, she's taken my pictures, and she told me I'll have no friends left. I think I'll pass on taking this case. And is anyone paying their mortgage? The CFPB recently warned that over 7 million borrowers have been placed into forbearance programs that are set to expire this summer. In a recent statement issued by Mike McCurdle, the CFPB's Assistant Director for Mortgage Markets, McCurdell warned that the agency will hold mortgage services accountable if they don't do enough to help people avoid losing their homes. In turning to the world of digital assets... The distinction between digital assets and the technology that supports them, i.e. blockchain and distributed ledger technology, and the marquee names that use the tech, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, is often misunderstood or overlooked. The tech is much different from the brand. A next step in the use of blockchain tech is so-called DeFi, which is decentralized finance. It's an umbrella term for providing financial services on public blockchain. In August, the Wall Street Journal reported on a new breed of uh, digital asset exchanges. This is potentially the holy grail for cryptocurrencies, online places for people to trade and, and lend that purportedly involve no middleman setting the rules or taking fees. DeFi developers they write software that automates the transactions. They say that after they set up the exchange, they then step away from the project, and uh, allowing it to operate with no central entity in charge. They argue that such decentralization defeats the need for oversight by governmental authorities. Good luck with the SEC or other regulators letting them go unregulated for long. Why buy a house when you can pretend to live there for the same price? NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, are either the next thing or the latest sign of speculative excess. For those who haven't followed this, an NFT is a piece of digital content that's linked to, to blockchain and traded on a network. An NFT is a token that represents any item in the real world like art or other collectibles. So When you buy an NFT you own the code and the proof of your ownership is placed on the blockchain. The the connection of the token to the blockchain ensures that it's unique and that it can be traced and that it's yours only. Here's one example of the NFT craze that paints the picture. Artist Krista Kim sold an NFT minted digital house for approximately $500,000. The virtual home or house is called Mars House, and it can be viewed viewed in virtual or augmented reality. The house is a digital file that the buyer can upload into 3D worlds and experience, and then even explore it using AR or VR goggles. However, you can never live in this house, ever. Think about it, $500,000 for a digital home that you can't live in. I guess the bright side is that you can never be evicted either.
0: Thank you for listening to Shear Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, See your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.